Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A warning for listeners. This episode contains graphic language and descriptions of child molestation. Please listen with caution and care. In 1997, Nancy Smith, a single mom, was working multiple jobs to provide for her four children. One of those jobs was driving preschool-aged children to and from the Head Start program five days a week. And Nancy took the responsibility seriously. I was there on time. I was there to pick them up on time, and I was there to take them home on time, you know? I had four kids. I didn't have time to play around. And then one day she was called into her boss's office. One of the children's mothers had made a shocking allegation against Nancy. They said that you didn't take her daughter to school. You took her daughter to a birthday party where you molested her. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Then other parents started coming forward, saying the same thing, that Nancy had molested their children. Soon, the allegations were all over the papers and TV. Things escalated until finally, Nancy was arrested for multiple counts of rape. They took me down to the police station. They put me in a holding cell, and I can remember one of the detectives come up to the holding cell, and he just gave me this really nasty look, and he said, you'll get what you deserve. I'm Nancy Smith. I was wrongfully convicted for 15 years. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Nancy Smith. Nancy Smith was born May 26, 1957, to Tom and Shirley Miller. She's one of seven siblings. The family lived in Lorain, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland. When Nancy was growing up, Lorain was known as the International City, celebrating the thriving and diverse immigrant population 
who came looking for work in booming industries like steel production. It was, of course, much better when I was growing up than it is now. A lot of things have changed, but it's, it's you know, still Lorraine. <laughs> Today, like many other Rust Belt cities, Lorraine has suffered from population decline and urban decay. But back in the 50s and 60s, Lorraine was the ideal all-American city. We lived a, a normal childhood. We used to play kickball. Jacks was a big thing, jacks and balls. Just normal things that kids did. Always had games and stuff that we played at home. You know, we didn't have a whole lot, but we had the love that we needed from my mom and dad. But for her parents, raising seven kids was tough. My dad was like the sole provider. My mom worked when she could, but, you know. What did your dad do for work? Well, he worked at a cemetery for 41 years. He was a foreman at two different cemeteries. Did you go to high school? Oh, yeah. I went my whole senior year, and that's so embarrassing. And I flunked POD (laughs) in the six weeks. POD, what is that? Problems of democracy. I mean, which, you know, I didn't really think I needed it at that time, you know. (laughs) Although she didn't graduate high school, Nancy was a hard worker. She held multiple jobs throughout her teenage years, including at a flower shop, a marina, and the local Y. How would you describe yourself? (laughs) Wow, I don't know. Um, I thought I was a good, kind person, you know. When she was 19, Nancy entered a new phase of life. She got married and started a family. I have four kids and, you know, they're they're the greatest part of my life. So tell me about growing up. Like, what was your mom like? I mean, my mom was my mom, you know? This is Courtney Smith, Nancy's second youngest child. She's now 42. You know, I specifically remember being, you know, like, happy. I mean, to me, I would say it was a, a, a normal, happy childhood We lived in a very clean household. You know, we never went without. We were always fed. And we always had, you know, what we needed. Not necessarily what we wanted, but, you know, kids are kids. And Nancy was good at making do with what they had. Okay, here's a memory that she's probably not going to laugh at, but I will. Um, The one year for Christmas, they gave us uh, plastic like knives and then we had to cut the Christmas presents open with knives <laughs> like plastic like we were not allowed to rip it right Wait, why couldn't you rip it because they were being frugal I don't know and then you know my listen oh because they wanted to save the paper yeah they were gonna they wanted to save the paper <laughs> but although Nancy loved her children her marriage was crumbling It wasn't a really happy marriage. She and her husband eventually divorced. By 1993, Nancy was in her late 30s, and all four of her children were teenagers. She worked multiple jobs to make ends meet. You know, it was pretty tough to make sure that, you know, I could get my kids to school and be home in enough time for them to, you know, make them dinner, get them ready for bed and whatever. So it was, you know, it wasn't easy for the most part of being a single mom. You know, I did the best I could. One of her jobs was driving a bus for Head Start, 
a federal program for low-income children under five to prepare them for school. She also drove for Meals on Wheels and the YMCA. So in between my bus routes, I would deliver meals to the senior citizens. And then I also did a route for the YMCA, their after-school program there. And then I would finish my day up with picking up the afternoon kids and dropping them off at home. At the same time, Nancy was also taking night classes to complete her GED. It all made for a busy day. I made sure that, you know, I was there on time. I was there to pick them up on time and I was there to take them home on time, you know. I had four kids. I had to do my job so I could get home to my family. I didn't have time to play around. So I want to ask about May 7th, 1993. What do you remember about that day? It started out as any other normal day. I went to work and and I got my bus warmed up and whatever. That's when her boss came over to talk to her. When you're done with your bus route, he said, "Bring your, take your bus, put it back at the station, then come down to downtown. We'd like to talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay. No idea. No, I, I said, what's it about? And he goes, eh, we'll just talk to you when you get there. When she walked in the office later that day, to her surprise, the director of the Head Start program was also there. That's when she told me that a mother had made an allegation against me. And I was like, what do you mean an allegation against me? And she said, well, they said that you didn't take her daughter to school. You took her daughter to a birthday party where you molested her. And I'm like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? The whole thing seemed preposterous to Nancy. I said, you guys have my records. I said, you have my mileage sheets. You have, you, there's records showing that this kid went to school. What are you talking about? And they were like, well, you know, we just, we have to address it because this is what some others accusing you of. But with all the documentation they had, Nancy was certain they'd see the story wasn't true. I followed the rules on my job. You know what I mean? I had a bus aide with me at all times. How would anybody accuse me of something like that? I had two other jobs. When did people think I had time to do this? You know, and then and, then, and to accuse me being a mother of that, I can't even tell you what that felt like. You can't even imagine being a mother of four kids and having someone say something like that about you. It's horrible. Nancy was suspended from her Head Start bus driving job while the allegations were being investigated. But she still had a family to feed, so she continued to drive her other routes. And... The next thing I know, it just escalated to this nightmare that ended me in prison for 15 years. After a mother accused Nancy of molesting her daughter, an official investigation was opened. It was headed up by Detective Tom Cantu, a respected 20-year veteran of the force. Cantu spoke with the woman who made the allegations, Margie Grondin. He also spoke to her daughter, To protect her privacy, we'll call her Grace. While speaking with them, officers observed that most of the information about the molestation came from the mother, Margie, not from Grace. Grace actually said the abuse never happened until, they noted, Margie coaxed her to say otherwise. Police said the little girl's responses became incoherent or illogical. 
The doctor who examined Grace also stated that she didn't see any signs of injury to her body. Based on these initial interviews, the police determined that it was unlikely that Margie Grandin's story was true. But it was a serious allegation, and the police were under pressure to do a thorough investigation. Detectives then went on to interview the 11 other children who rode Nancy's bus. None of them said they were abused. In fact, they all said they liked Nancy and that she was a nice bus driver. But Margie Grandin kept it up. She went to the homes of two of the children, whom we'll call Luke and Sarah, and she told their parents that their children had been molested. When Luke and Sarah were interviewed by the police, it was clear they were simply repeating what their parents and Margie Grandin told them to say. Detective Cantu, for the second time, determined there was not enough evidence to substantiate the allegations, and he announced that he wanted to close the case. I just thought it's never going to go nowhere because I didn't do anything, you know. Which at first it didn't. And then next thing you know, Margaret Grondin is all over the media Mm -hmm. talking about this. Mm -hmm. Enraged that the police were not moving forward on charging Nancy, Margie Grondin went to the media saying a molester was stalking Head Start children and that the police were doing nothing about it. I was just like, oh my God, what is this woman doing? What is she doing? Why is she doing this to me? I never had any problems with her. And her child was always back at her house, always at time. I mean, this woman used to give me my bus aid gifts at Christmas time, at Easter time, and then to turn around and make an allegation like this against me was, I was just floored. And Nancy was especially confused when she found out what she was actually being accused of. Margie Grondin claimed her daughter didn't go to school that day. Instead, she said Nancy took Grace to the house of a man named Joseph, who was allegedly Nancy's boyfriend, and that he tied Grace up, put tape over her eyes, and sexually molested her with a stick. At this point, had the name Joseph been brought up to you? I never knew about Joseph Allen until his picture hit the newspaper. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where they work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Thanks to Margie Grondin's public accusations, Nancy found herself in the center of a media frenzy. It was on every news channel. It was in the newspapers. I had media coming to my house, knocking on my door. Over the next few months, 15 other children came forward with stories of abuse by Nancy and Joseph. Ten were proven to be baseless right off the bat because those children didn't ride Nancy's bus route. One of them didn't even attend Head Start. 
After these added allegations, Nancy volunteered to take a polygraph, which at the time was still believed to be a reliable method of detecting lies. According to the test administrator, she passed. So for the third time, Detective Cantu wrote a report stating that he believed the allegations were unfounded and that he wouldn't bring any charges against Nancy. Detective Cantu was then taken off the case. Other detectives resumed the investigation, and for months, the only information they had about the second suspect was that his name was Joseph. The police ultimately believed five children, Grace, Luke, Sarah, and two of the 15 who came forward after the media frenzy. They all had varying descriptions of Joseph, sometimes saying he was white, sometimes black, and sometimes black with white spots. One of the children identified a white man whose name was not Joseph as the perpetrator, but his house did not match the description of the house the children had given, so he was ruled out. Another white man, the owner of a gay bar, was identified and also ruled out. The police became frustrated with the children's muddled and unreliable information. And while trying to get answers, they asked leading, repetitive questions designed to fit the narrative given by the parents. So when you do start seeing these media reports, then it becomes, it starts becoming an actual situation. I think when it first hit me was the day that they arrested me in front of my kids. The arrest happened six months after the alleged crimes took place, on November 10th, 1993. They came to my parents' home, and it was like five cop cars, and they handcuffed me in front of my children. That's something they should never have had to worry about. And that's something that I never should have had to worry about. Eventually, police also settled on their second suspect, a 39-year-old Black man named Joseph Allen, who was being investigated for an unrelated crime. Nancy remembers seeing his picture in the news before they were both arrested. And that was the first time that I actually ever seen Joseph Allen. I I remember calling Jack Bradley, my attorney at the time, and I was like, oh, my God, Jack, who is this guy? I don't even know who this guy is. And he said, well, they're trying to say that this was your boyfriend. I said, I don't know who this man is. I've never even met this man before. Nancy was charged with multiple counts of rape. I'm trying to remember if they even said anything to me. I I mean, at this point, I think I just kind of like just blanked out because they, you know, they handcuffed me. They took me down to the police station. They put me in a holding cell. And I can remember one of the detectives come up to the holding cell and he just gave me this really nasty look. And he said, you'll get what you deserve. And he walked away and, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting in there. I'm, I'm just, I'm crying. I don't know what to do, you know. They just let me lay there for hours and hours and hours on this just this still bed, nothing, just a, just a plain still bed. They just let me lay there for hours and hours and hours. The trial started in July of 1994. The prosecutor was Jonathan Rosenbaum. He called Margie Grandin, along with a few other parents, to testify as to what they heard and saw from the children. He also called a bus aide, 
who said she had previously seen Joseph Allen with Nancy during her bus route. He also presented four of the five children who said they were molested. One of them said on the stand the abuse never happened, but the other three went into detail. When talking about the sexual allegations, it's the sort of things that like a kid who doesn't actually know about sexual interactions might say when someone says, what happened to you down there? This is Mark Godsey, a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law and director of the Ohio Innocence Project. He says the kids' stories were not only inconsistent with each other and with the previous statements, but that they were also obviously made up. So they would say things like, you know, they stick sticks up our butt. They make us drink pee. This is like the sort of ridiculous things that three and four-year-olds, when they're doing bathroom talk, talk about. I mean, it was just ridiculous, you know. To sit there and watch these little kids talk about something that they didn't even know what they were talking about. Including things like, I was tied up to a tree out on a busy street and I was naked and I was tied up all day long. Like like any kid that's like four years old is going to be naked and tied to a tree right by a busy road all day and somebody's not going to call the police and no one's going to have any memory of this. You know, just very bizarre type things. I mean, I'm sitting there listening to this like, are you kidding me? I mean, are you really kidding me? This, Where's this shit coming from? Can I cuss? Because I have a bad... (laughs) I'm sorry. I get When I start getting talking about it, I get really... I can say some pretty horrible words. Mark understands why Nancy is frustrated. The thing that's difficult about this case is that it's, it's hard to imagine how bad the defense attorney did. The defense attorney was Jack Bradley. Mark says that Bradley did a horrible job at presenting evidence to disprove the allegations. There are things that you just can't get past that prove this did not happen, and they were all either not introduced or ignored. It was like a perfect storm. For example, on the day in question and every day, there was a babysitter in the back of the bus who was willing to testify, I was back there. There was never a day where I got taken to some boyfriend of Nancy's house and these kids were molested. Of course not, right? And this person was not called as a witness. Like, how can you make this up? There were attendance records showing that the kids were there on the day in question. And in fact, the the kids who were part of this allegation and testified at trial were never all absent on the same day. Was that brought up at trial? Oh. When Bradley called Nancy to testify, she said she had never seen Joseph Allen in her life. He also called a transportation manager from a local county agency who testified that they checked Nancy's bus mileage and did not detect any side trips. But no documents were entered into evidence or shown to the jury. It doesn't matter if you think the allegations, like it doesn't matter if they're ludicrous. If you've got evidence showing it didn't happen, you still got to introduce it. The defense attorney didn't introduce any of it into evidence. I think he thought there's no way there's going to be a conviction. I mean, that was like a fog sitting in this trial by a man that I didn't even know, being falsely accused of molesting children, having my family sit in a courtroom and listen to this appalling shit that was coming out of their mouth, the lies and the people getting on stand and lying and just. Did you think that you would be convicted? No, no, there's no way. I thought there's no way. But on August 4th, 1994, 
Nancy was convicted of all charges. She was sentenced to 30 to 90 years in prison. And I can remember Jonathan Rosenbaum making this smirk-ass face that he always did. And I lunged toward the table. I remember that. Jack, I remember Jack pulled me back. And um, then them taking me down to the holding cell. I mean, I felt like I was, like, it was just so unreal. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cry. It just is so hard to try to relive this. Nancy's daughter, Courtney, who was 14 at the time, also remembers that moment her mom was convicted. She and her siblings weren't allowed in the courtroom, so she was in the hallway of the courthouse watching the trial on TV. I remember watching it going dumbfounded, right? Like, what is going on? And uh, I remember, like, all the newspapers, you know, the reporters and the TV stations and... They're all flashing, and I remember screaming at Margie and going, are you happy now? The B word. Um, And the next day I know I'm being, like, pulled away, and she's like, your mother did this? You know, and I'm like, no, she did it. But, you know, they pulled me out, and then I just remember sitting there going, what's going to happen to us, you know? Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. After the convictions, Margie Grondin, along with several other parents, sued the Lorain County Head Start Program for damages. They won their cases and settled for $1.5 million each. So in the 80s and 90s, we went through this era where there were a couple famous cases where individuals claimed that their very young children had been sexually abused in daycares that had some sort of deep pockets behind them, like Head Start, federally funded places, so you could get some sort of big settlement. It was like part of the satanic panic where the parents who would be able to drum up these charges were making millions. The phrase satanic panic 
came about because, in addition to molestations, children sometimes also described satanic rituals, witches flying through the air, and other bizarre events. One of the most notorious examples is the McMartin case. In the early 1980s, members of the McMartin family, who operated a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, were charged with hundreds of acts of sexual abuse involving children under their care. The story set off a national media frenzy. It was like this hysteria that was like whipped up that, oh my God, all these little kids are being molested by these daycare centers. This is like a, you know, a pandemic. This is a huge problem that's, that, that's going on and sweeping the country. The McMartin case was ultimately dismissed seven years later, but not before dozens of similar unfounded lawsuits had erupted. Back in the 90s, even the 80s, were you aware of any other cases like yours, like specifically this McMartin case is a really famous one? No, no, I never, you know, I mean, I was too busy being a mom and doing what I was doing to, you know, really wasn't into the news and stuff like that. After her sentencing, Nancy was sent to Marysville Reformatory, a women's prison in Ohio. I think the first two years I cried myself to sleep every night. (laughs) So, Courtney, did you stay close with your mom? Oh, yeah. We we talked um, whenever she could afford to, and it got easier when I had a job so we could send her money. Somebody would always take us down, you know, like it was like a monthly thing. And then when we got old enough and we could go ourselves, I mean, there was times that I took friends with me so they could meet her. What What is seeing your mom in prison like? Oh, it's, it's not a fun, enjoyable experience. So it really was never a pleasant experience, but at least we were able to go see her. Eventually, Nancy felt some joy when she joined the prison's horticulture program. Like that was my saving grace. I mean, honestly, I did this program for nine years. And then the man who ran the program asked me if I would stay on as his aide. And uh, so I would be the one that they would let go in the greenhouse and just water all the flowers. I can remember just putting my headphones on and just going there and just thinking I was just in a whole different place. After Mark and the Ohio Innocence Project took on her case, things started to turn around for Nancy. In 2009, a new state law in Ohio required Nancy to be resentenced. Mark and his team petitioned the court arguing there was not enough evidence for a conviction, and Judge James Burge agreed. So Nancy's conviction was vacated, and she went home. And I thought, oh my God, this is fine. This nightmare's finally over. It's finally over. But 30 days later, the state appealed the ruling, and Nancy's conviction was restored. She didn't return to prison, though. Her hearing was delayed for two years. And during that time... Nancy tried to resume a semblance of normalcy. So what was picking up the pieces of your life like? The first five years I was home, like I wouldn't go anywhere without anybody. Somebody had to be with me at all times. Because I don't know how I would react to have somebody come up and say something really negative to me. I was already angry for all these years that I spent in prison and fighting this case for so many years. And so the first five years was really tough for me to, you know, the post-traumatic stress disorder, the anxiety, um, not knowing if I'm going back to prison or staying home or whatever. 
In the meantime, Mark and his team were focused on filing a post-conviction motion for clemency based on a bombshell video they discovered that had been withheld by the prosecution. The video showed the police lineup, where the children from Head Start were being asked to identify their molester. And what was actually going on in that room was shocking. The parents were coaching during the eyewitness identification and like taking the kids' hands and pointing them at Joseph Allen. The Ohio Innocence Project also compiled records showing the abuse could not have occurred because all the children were in school the day it supposedly happened. And they submitted affidavits from Nancy's bus aides stating that they saw Nancy drop the kids at school. On top of that, Mark and his team also submitted to the court records showing she was working two other jobs the afternoon in question. In April of 2012, Mark, along with the law firm Davis Polk and Wardwell, filed a petition for clemency with the Ohio Parole Board and Governor John Kasich. In addition to Nancy's innocence, the petition also argued that child psychologists have since discredited the techniques used for questioning the children. At the time this was going on, what the common belief was that if a kid is saying this, it must be true, because why would a kid make this up? And, you know, from the mouths of babes, you know, like that's the phrase that kids are always telling the truth because they don't they don't know to lie yet. When in reality, when they're being coached or when an adult is is trying to get them to say something, they're very adaptable and they're very easy to manipulate and get to say what the adult wants them to say. You know, children will come to believe what they're being told over and over again and what they're being coached to believe. And that's well established in the psychological literature. And now, you know, decades later, when the smoke is cleared, we realize that this was most of these people are actually innocent. A lot of these cases were drummed up for people who were, you know, seeking to sue and get monetary damages. And that's exactly what Nancy Smith got, unfortunately, wrapped up in. In 2013, Nancy was finally resentenced to 12 years. And having already served 14, she was granted time served but she was still not exonerated of the charges. Meaning, to the rest of the world, Nancy was still a convicted child rapist. Fast forward to 2021, when there was a changing of the guard in Lorain County. We had an open-minded prosecutor who was going to take a second look at it. The new prosecutor, J.D. Tomlinson, actually started his own investigation into Nancy's case in conjunction with Mark and his team. This was promising. And then, late one night, Mark was working in his office when something completely unexpected happened. I get a call from Dino Grunden. Dino is the son of Margie Grunden and Grace's older brother. Who said, I've got a story for you. Like, I have a daughter now that's the same age. And Margie Grunden is her grandmother, my mother. And... Margie Grundon is manipulating her the same way I saw Margie Grundon manipulate my little sister when I was a kid. She's doing the same thing again. She's like coaching my own kid. And so I became concerned that Margie Grundon is trying to set up the same scenario that she had done back in the 90s where she was able to get money by using her own child, but this time doing it with her grandchild. The authorities confirmed Dino's allegations by catching Margie on a nanny cam. They found that the child was being coached when they they left the room, but they left the tape recorder on and she was like practicing and practice crying and stuff. This is what exactly what, what Dino Grundon was telling us was going on. This revelation, along with an affidavit from the original investigator, Detective Cantu, was enough for Prosecutor Tomlinson. 
after his own five-month investigation, Tomlinson was sure of Nancy's innocence, and he moved to have the charges dismissed. And at a hearing on February 25th, 2022, he offered a public apology. And to Miss Smith and to Mr. Allen, I want to say that I apologize to you, especially for what was done to you and to your families as a result of this ill-conceived prosecution. On behalf of the state of Ohio, I wish nothing but the best for you and your loved ones. And I hope that in the future, only happiness and good fortune may follow you. Your Honor, I will be moving this honorable court to dismiss these matters. That day, Judge Chris Cook vacated Nancy's convictions for the final time. Today, Nancy is still living in Lorain, Ohio. She's a dog groomer and volunteers at her church to give back to people less fortunate. She still doesn't like to go places alone, but she's received much more support than she expected. I would have people come up and say, can I just give you a hug? Or come up to me and say, we're just so glad we always believed in you. We knew that this was bogus. We knew that this case was not true. So, Courtney, why do you think... Margie Grundon did this? Money. I think 110% she concocted a scheme for money, and that's why she did this. You know, to me, she's a narcissist. What does that feel like, that your mom's life was worth less than some money? I think it feels horrible. Um, but, you know, the older you get, the more mature you get, and you, you really start understanding that there are truly people out there that don't care. And they don't care what they put other people through, and they're going to do whatever they want to get whatever they want. And then this is just one of those cases. All it takes is one person, one person, a a Margie Grundon, to do this to you. And before you know it, your life's just gone from you, you know? I mean, one thing I can say today is that I will never, ever let somebody else do this to me again. But know that I survived, and I got through this with the grace of God. I got through this with Mark Gotze and the Innocent Project. I got through this with Judge Burge. I got through this with J.D. Tomlinson. And I'll continue to get through every obstacle that ever comes my way in life. Because I know that I can. And I know that I can, you know, continue not to live the best life that I can do. (laughs) To help Ohio exonerees, Nancy suggests supporting the Phoenix Initiative, which provides clothing, toiletries, and other necessities to exonerees when they're released. Links to this and to the Ohio Innocence Project will be in our bio. Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, Tammy Vance. She was snoring really loud, and all of a sudden it stopped, and I freaked out. And I told Lee, she's not breathing. She's not breathing. Lee got on the phone with 911, and I administered CPR until the ambulance got there. 
Thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, producer Lila Robinson, and story editor Sonia Paul. The show is edited and mixed by Annie Chelsea, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.